0: They'll do very well, um, which we said in the message to them yesterday. Let me pray for us before we get started. Father God, we thank you that you are King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And we thank you that even with that title, you are a God of love, your character is love, you are a compassionate... God, you are uh, one that treats us with grace and mercy, and you are one that in that relationship calls us higher, and to mission, to see that your glory and your name is uh, just spread throughout this earth. And we know, and we stand here convicted, Father, that it is you, uh, above anything else, that brings peace between peoples and salvation to souls and change to character and there are little band-aids we can use and all these things you know as far as better helps and all that kind of stuff but we know that ultimately that you are the answer for what ills you know pains us and the ills that plague us as as people and so we pray father god that your message and your name would go out strongly and we pray that you would teach us this morning, go beyond Jason babbling up here and really in that weird, un, you know, un, the, the way that I can't understand it, way that you can speak to our hearts individually and corporately through your Holy Spirit. And we we ask for that this morning. I pray that every single person, myself included, would walk away this morning being convicted of something and changed by your word and and pushed and challenged even farther and not in a heavy way but in a way that really is exciting we pray that for these people sitting in this room and everybody watching at home and everybody who will watch at home in the next few days father glorify your name in christ And we pray amen so If you haven't been with us, we've been in Philippians, we're still in chapter 1. You know, if you're new here with us today, welcome. Uh, I am a wordy pastor, (laughs) but we will get through this. But anyway, uh, I would like to say that just beginning, we increasingly live in a world and I don't mean to sound u- uber-negative or anything like that, but we increasingly live in a world where, which, in which the values and the long-held beliefs surrounding Christ and His Gospel are not only being challenged very strongly, but they are being maligned and they are being considered to be antithetical to the social and political fabric in which we live. Slowly the Christian ethic, the Christian worldview, they are both being seen as not only roadblocks, but also as social enemies. Antiquated thinking, right? Which holds back progress. A true utopian society to some is thought only to be achieved when Christianity is no longer a part of the conversation. Christians are now being painted as the bad citizen, right? Simply due to their faith and their biblical convictions on the human condition and how life is to be governed and lived in certain areas of life. That's the world we live in. Our society right now has in many areas moved from reflecting a christian ethic not that i would say that we've ever done that perfectly to the exact opposite many christian leaders believe that persecution will come in full force for christians in the coming years another christian leader said to me this week that our current social fabric feels like the plates of the earth shifting and separating quickly and it's just just rocking us it's shaking us to the core I've personally had opportunity recently to hear what's being taught in Zoom classes in local high schools, and it's not only the exact opposite of the Christian ethic, it is is hostile to it. And disagreement often brings swift social pressure or worse. The new definition of gender fluidity has been even included at the level of kindergarten curriculum in local schools. One Philadelphia teacher on the news recently said that he's very worried about all this Zoom classroom stuff because parents will actually hear what's being taught to their children and that will undermine the progress that they've made away from the traditional face based thinking in America. How far this will go is yet to be seen, but the signs are there. Suffice it to say, decisions are now being made out of a humanistic worldview, devoid of God's moral direction and standard. And we certainly can't expect, as Christians, that everyone falls in line with the Christian worldview. That's not what I'm saying. But we should be prepared as Christians with all of this worldview shift that is happening beneath our feet. It's quite confusing, and let me just say very clearly, philosophically, in all ways, it will not work. Listening to an Ivy League speaker on human rights this week after uh, she outlined all the differing and conflicting views on what the differing groups in society uh, feel are their human rights, she identified the obvious philosophical and social quandary by simply asking the question, Whose rights are the right rights? Whose rights are the right rights? And that, my friends, is something that nobody can find. I mean, you can't find that answer. Simply put, divided we fall. Well, that was heavy, wasn't it? Because there is no consensus Due to a lack of central moral standard in this world or value for human life as in the Christian worldview, we are seeing value from human life decrease, not increase, and the church will continue to be affected by this extremely, like like a lot, like just very greatly, right? In Iran right now, there's a legal battle, a legal case where a couple adopted a little girl and the state deemed them unfit to raise the child due to the fact that they had converted to Christianity. Judge Mohammad Hassan uh, Dashti uh, acknowledged that the girl will probably live the rest of her life under state care because, by the way, Muslims don't adopt. I don't know if you know that. They don't. For them, it is much better for this girl to be raised by the state than by loving Christian parents. And America is very close to, in some areas of life right now, where the government will feel justified to intercede in a family's life. You know, when we teach certain Christian values to our children, and I'm not saying this to be like, you know, like uh, fire and brimstone and all that stuff. But the government has already mandated uh, certain lessons contrary to Christian teaching, uh, think, you know, which, which must be taught to children by foster and adoptive parents, if the issues should arise in conversation with them. Kim and I take in foster children, and refu- we have one new son, my fifth kid, my, my refugee kid from Ethiopia. God bless him. walked. From the border of Ethiopia, walked from Ethiopia, the other side of Ethiopia actually, all the way to the Kenyan border at, you know, like a really young age, by himself, bare feet. Crazy. I think we got it bad, right? Uh, so we, 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 we have all this stuff going on, and it's, and it's serious. It is serious. But there is also hope, there's always hope in the gospel. You know, Paul and the Philippian church experienced this same sort of persecution on many levels, probably worse than us, and it's largely why this letter was written. Christians were seen at that time as a detriment to society and a challenge to the values and the worldview and the current political structure due only to their faith and their worldview. And remembering what we said last week, that seeing all of life through the vantage point of of Christ as king, Christ as Lord over everything, our lives are worthy of suffering for his glory and his mission. It's worth that. And as a result of what he said to us last week, up until now, he says this in Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. And if you want to open your Bibles, you can and follow along with me. But it says, Whatever happens, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come to see you or I only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit striving together as one for the face of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed but that you will be saved and that by god god's doing right for it has been granted to you on behalf of christ not only to believe in him but also to suffer for him since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So Paul, we know, is suffering for Jesus in prison, right? And he has all integrity to speak to them this way, right? Now, two matters are, are, are discussed here in this short passage, both that bend towards the end result of the gospel of Christ being preached to all nations, all peoples, Right? And, and 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 in other words whatever happens to us whatever we go through whatever we experience paul says here it is for the glory and the mission of jesus and we can go back to matthew 28:18 through 20 the great commission which should be at the forefront of our thinking. His last command is our first concern, right? And it says, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me, Jesus talking, right? Not Jason talking, given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you to the very end of the age. Dude, memorize that one. So whatever we face, whatever we face, Jesus always walks through it with us, no matter if you feel his presence there or not, right? We don't base our standing in Christ on our feelings. It's about the furtherance of God's message going out to other people around us. That's what what our mission is. John Piper in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, said God's mission to bring the gospel to all nations will end when Christ returns, but worship will continue forever. God's mission will end, but his glory goes on forever. Matthew 24, 14, Jesus himself said, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached uh, in the whole world as as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. There's a lot of work still to be done out there. There will come a time on, upon Christ's return when our mission will end. We'll no longer need to share the gospel with people. And we will enjoy his forever glory and the, the forever glory of Christ for you know, extending into, into eternity. And at that time, as it says in Revelation 7:17, 7, the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. All suffering will end as we are unified forever under Christ's complete rule. I want that. Our central purpose in the world right now is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus to all nations with little regard to personal desire. He must increase we must decrease, as, as John the Baptist said. You know, I think it was, I think it was Francis Chan who did a, a, a sermon once where he had this long rope extending from the stage and out the front door of the church. And the rope represented eternity, you know, as he was speaking. And uh, on the stage at his end, there was like a, an inch of it painted red. And he pointed out rightly that uh, we worry so much about that one inch, that little piece here of the rope right that that you know that one inch of red our rights our bodies you know our our desires what we want out of life and all that kind of stuff we build our own little kingdoms and he you know he noted rightly we as citizens of the kingdom of god have to look at our lives in light of eternity the rest of the rope what's most important in the red zone right of that rope is that we proclaim and seek Christ for others beyond our own will right now. The first matter in this passage has to do with the nature of their stand as citizens of the kingdom of God, verses 27 and 28. And this, mat- this first matter can be sort of broken down in- into the individual response of the believer as well as our corporate response as the unified church. And it's not really that easy right now from these verses here to see that Paul is speaking. He's actually speaking of being a good citizen of the kingdom of God, no matter how the state or society uh, reacts to you or treats you, right? By the way, the state or the society or my neighbors, they're not my enemies at all. That's not what we're saying. But he says, when, when he says conduct yourselves in a manner worthy, he's using a very specific verb which only occurs one other time in his writing. It can be translated as behave as citizens or live the life uh, of a citizen or, it, or to live as a member of a community. But it came to be applied to the moral conduct as defined by a community. He usually would use a different verb to describe Christian conduct. So he is speaking very clearly right here, very distinctly in how we live or what we do in our bodies, in our lives, or how we behave in the context of the Christian life and community as we live in this world. Holding to the standards and the values and the convictions of the Christian life as defined by Jesus in the Scriptures. Since later in chapter 3, verse 20, he says our citizenship is in heaven. In other words, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus. Or conduct yourselves as citizens of heaven despite what society dictates to you. Despite what all the values are out there walk in the values of christ you know they've experienced persecution the philippian church and they will experience more and uh he's preparing them and i'd be remiss if i didn't say the same for us you know he so he prepared them and we also i think need to be prepared for anything that comes our way in whatever form it comes but remembering again what we said last week that your life is worth suffering for the name of christ in this world It is worth it. The great adventure too. But what do good citizens do? Good citizens follow the law, right? And not just the letter of it, the spirit of it as well. They contribute, they work as one under the shared values and morals in which the government of Christ has been established, right? And this includes things like our sexual ethic of marriage being between one man and one woman with the sexual act as a consummation of a commitment and, and limited to the marriage covenant. Our, our society doesn't teach that. It extends into the idea that we are physically embodied spiritual beings, so what we do with and in our bodies is actually very important. It has great meaning. It has to do with the value of human life extending from simply how we speak to each other to the very life of an unborn child in a woman's womb. It extends to biblical justice and care and mercy being practiced among all peoples for sure. It encompasses the Beatitudes and all that teaching and all the rest of Scripture's teaching as Jesus indicated. Nothing will go away from the Word of God. Jesus upholds all of it, right? It extends into how we spend our money, how we make our decisions, and the integrity of an honest life. It's a call to a certain biblical ethic to be lived by all believers everywhere. To be agreed on. All the things the church has agreed on throughout the centuries, throughout its life. It's only in recent history, you've got to understand this, it is only in recent history in which these things have been undermined and challenged by a very pointed effort to dismantle the church's influence in the world. And it's been orchestrated very well. So we have an individual responsibility as believers to live worthy of the gospel of Christ. Bearing in mind that the fight isn't reactionary. Now listen to this very carefully. It's not reactionary against non-believers as adversaries. That's not what we're talking about. We love our neighbors. But it is that we contend for the faith. That we contend for the gospel message to the world around us. And naturally, this all extends into our corporate life as a church and as the church at large as well, right? Paul sees the church as unifying under Jesus. Unifying under Jesus and his reign in all of life coming under him. There's no room. Let me just say this really clearly. There is no room to have a different view than Jesus as king concerning his directives and still consider themselves a person to be unified. That's not unification under your king. Unification is to come under the rule and the reign of God in Christ as governed by the scriptures and what it teaches us. We can't have salvation without repentance from what God deems a sin. We can't. Repentance means to turn away from sin and turn towards God. And the sad fact is, the sad fact is, and this is not preached in churches too often these days because it's not considered PC, but the sad fact is stated here by Paul that those who refuse to come under Jesus won't see the full glory of Christ upon his return. They'll they'll be separated from him for eternity. I needed to hear that when I first came to Christ. I needed to know that. You need to know it. Everybody out there needs to know that. That those who reject Jesus or think that they can have Jesus without being unified under His reign, in other words, you get Him as Savior, but you don't take Him as Lord, won't participate in the forever glory of Christ. And that is sad, but it is true. It's not what we want for anybody. We want everybody to flood the the gates of, 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 of heaven, to be there with us. As 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is the power of God. Now remember, this is really important. This is all couched in the conversation of grace. We know that. We are saved by grace through faith and that by God and not by us. It's His doing. We didn't achieve it ourselves. That's Ephesians chapter 2. Very important passage, right? Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. However, there is a difference between someone making mistakes, admitting to them, and seeking repentance over and over again, even if it's an ongoing struggle of sinful patterns in your life, as opposed to someone saying, well... I can do whatever I want in this area and Jesus has to accept me anyway. As Paul alludes here, that latter person, that, that's a sign that they really don't know Jesus nor do they want to really know Jesus. That's not judgment of a heart. It's just reading the signs. David was not excluded from God's family because of his sin with Bathsheba, but it was a sin, right? He admitted his wrong, he repented well, and that was a sign that God had convicted his heart. He didn't argue pridefully against God that he could be allowed to do what he wanted with Bathsheba, and that didn't matter. It did matter. Even more so, a murder later. Paul's not asserting some innate worthiness of us as citizens instead he merely insists that having been incorporated by god having been incorporated as citizens and thereby made worthy our conduct is now to be appropriate that's what he's saying in keeping with our new status and our new dignity i represent jesus you know, for Aristotle, practice made perfect. For Aristotle, practice made perfect. In other words, doing, what you, what you do, constituted being. This is very different from the gospel, by the way. Right? So the virtuous person becomes virtuous by doing virtuous acts. That's not what we're saying. In contrast, for Paul, being precedes and entails doing almost like you can't pull them apart and only then can doing in turn confirm our being it's to live what you already are in christ you jesus makes us alive right and then we live our lives for his glory You are citizens of heaven. Therefore, live accordingly in a manner worthy of your king's name. As Paul says in Romans 6.11, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Good memory verse. When you're struggling with sin, good memory verse. Galatians 5.16, so I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. It doesn't say Stop, stop sinning, and you will walk by the Spirit. That's not what it says. It says, focus on Jesus. Walk in the Spirit of God. Focus on Christ, and you will not gratify these desires. They'll, they'll melt away. Colossians chapter 3, since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above. That's where our thoughts should be. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. That's a wonderful thought. Good memory verse as well. So what Paul is doing is he's simply reminding them of who they are in Jesus, right? Who their king really is. When they're looking at Rome... And how they're to reflect His kingdom, His kingdom standards to all the world around Him, no matter what suffering they might face. Which brings us to the second thing that He discusses, and that is that Christians suffering in light of their position in Christ, and, and Christians suffering in their stand for Christ in verses 29 through 30, and I'll just remind you, it says, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for Him. Since you are going through the same struggle which you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So it's necessary for Paul to communicate to people that are suffering for Jesus, right? What they endure now, you know, it, it's, it's, it's good for us to know that what we, what we endure now intimately ties us to Jesus. There's something going on in here. In Colossians 1.24, he states, Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. And I, listen to this, this is strange. What I, what, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. Still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. What a strange verse, right? <laughs> you ever think about that one? What's still lacking in regards to Christ's sufferings? Didn't Jesus suffer enough? You know, wasn't Christ's suffering, which led to the death, his death and and, and resurrection, sufficient for anyone's salvation? Of course it was. We teach that all the time in the church. We believe that. But Paul knows. That we live as citizens which have already tasted the beginnings of the kingdom of God in this world and it is not fully realized as of yet. There's still work to be done. Hence the future hope of Revelation 7 as I read before. Remember Jesus said in the Great Commission and, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So we don't fully understand how. I don't get it. But Jesus is embodied in the individual believer and much more so even in the church. And as we suffer, he suffers along with us. We willingly take up the mantle to which we've been called by our king to continue the work of the gospel until he returns. But that work is being done alongside of him. 2 Corinthians 4.10 we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also also be revealed in our body. Amen to that. You guys remember the parable of the talents when the master left, uh, he went off and he left his servants in charge of his money and he gave three guys different amounts of money in Matthew chapter 25. And two of them invested what, he, what they were given and made more money for their master. But the third guy buried his, his, uh, his money and, and he didn't make a thing for his master because he said he knew you were a hard man. Some, something like to that effect. And the master took his bag of gold and gave it to the first guy and then he threw that third guy out. Since his actions were a clear sign, the man really didn't know or care to know, let alone work for the interest of the master. He was there to serve himself. He wasn't there to serve the master. But notice, he, the master is master of all of them, but those who, 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 uh, who, who show that they actually know the master through their investment of what the master gives get to enjoy his presence somebody called me intense this week i'm an intense preacher my wife did by the way that came after a conversation with a neighbor who uh says it seems so serious the gospel is serious isn't it god bless her i love this lady We're, we're having lots of good discussions and stuff but um the gospel is serious it is intense And the sad fact is is that people don't preach it, it as intense. Isn't that a sad thing? When we identify with Jesus, suffering confirms our faith. It brings us into closer contact with him. We share something. It provides a vehicle for making commitment real and tangible. It's when your rubber hits the road of your faith, right? So good citizens of the kingdom invest what Jesus has left us in charge of, right? Out of a great deep connection with him, even when things are very difficult. It's one thing to accept suffering and resign oneself to it. You know, you you, sort of like the victim mentality. Oh, I'm suffering so much. Oh, I just have to get through this. It's another thing to realize the privileges which come through suffering as well as the intimate identification with jesus that it brings the closeness as paul says in chapter three i want to know christ yes to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead paul's not done he's still running the race Paul's suffering related directly to calling people to salvation in Jesus, to this mission of Christ. You know, the universal nature of the gospel presented a problem to the Gentiles. You know, we, they had their own religions. And, and, and to the Jews, the Jews just wanted the Gentiles to be Jewish. And the result of that is that Paul suffered at, at the hands of both groups and the church of Philippi would do so as well. And Paul innately sort of practiced this theology of suffering without becoming, one, calloused to, the, to uh, human need, and two, uh, without accepting suffering as a good thing. And the danger for Christians when they, they go through suffering is that they would choose one of those two things. They'd become callous to human need, and they would see suffering as a good thing suffering is evil it's wrong it originates from the sin of people there will not be suffering in heaven it is not a good thing and paul stopped short of mixing good and evil he didn't do that which would make evil or suffering a good thing right he, he realized the benefits of and privileges of being in a battle uh involved in this battle for truth and that battle scars were inevitable in that fight The supreme model for Paul was always Jesus. Always Jesus. Similarly, Christians should remember that suffering sometimes comes because we live in a world which suffers as a result of sin. Christians are to be called to a unique suffering because of our identification with righteousness in an evil world. It's a divinely given privilege to be involved in this battle this mission of god and the struggle becomes redemptive in a sense in our identification and our work with jesus our work for jesus the philippians were therefore sort of to take heart in their suffering not becoming calloused not thinking that that was like a good thing You know, becoming the victim and all that kind of stuff or anything like that. Their steadfastness in this would demonstrate the reality of their relationship to God. People would be able to see them and look at them and point to them and say, those people are about Jesus. So in conclusion, simply put, Christians are to adopt a way of life in keeping with our corporate citizenship as constituted in Christ and the gospel. The Philippians were citizens of Rome, but they were ultimately citizens of Christ's kingdom. We too are citizens in America, but over and above that, we are heavenly subjects of our King Jesus, and we answer to Him first. So I remind you, Ephesians 5.8, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. 1 Corinthians 6.11 you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You, you, are, you, you are in Jesus. That's the being part, right? And by the Spirit of our God, it says. So, whatever happens, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Stand firm. In one spirit, strive together as one for the face of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Fear is not the answer. It's been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. And we are called, we are called, this is our central, his last command, our first concern, we are called to proclaim Jesus to all nations. And it's worth the suffering, it's worth the trouble for the sake of his glory and his mission in light of eternity, in light of the rest of the rope going out the front door of the church. amen (laughs) i am intense let me pray father god we thank you that you are king and lord and we don't want you just as savior we want you as lord over our lives even if we have to say that gritting our teeth sometimes even if we have to say that saying that we don't agree with you in our thinking but we will submit to you out of obedience we pray that we could do that and we do pray that you would change our hearts, that you would change our thinking, that you would bring us in alignment with to what your kingdom values and what true citizenship of heaven really means as we walk this out with each other in this world and seek to, to expand your kingdom to other people that desperately, desperately need it, even if they don't know it. You are the answer to everything. You are God, you are King of the universe. And you will come again, and you will wipe every tear away. There will not be crime, there will not be racism, there will not be hatred, there will not be suffering. As we are unified under our King's full reign in the future, and we thank you for that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.